What have you been up to? I mean, you're, what you, you, how's it going with your dissertation? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm back home full-time, um, completing a dissertation at the University mm-hmm. of Alabama, doing an interdisciplinary PhD, and my concentration is looking at um, brass bands in New Orleans post-Katrina. You know, Why did you want to go that direction? Well, I think there are multiple uh, there are multiple reasons. One, I grew up in that in that tradition. You know, mm-hmm. I grew up in that genre of music. Yeah, and it's offered a lot of opportunities in terms of educational opportunities, travel. Essentially, it's given me a lot of agency uh-huh. and a lot of cultural capital. Right. And I just feel that you know, even as a musician, that the brass band community is looked down upon mm-hmm. so much by other musicians, mm-hmm. you know, because the music is essentially performed on the street. You know, people look at the fact of thinking it's just these poor black guys or just poor whoever it is mm-hmm. that's playing this type of music. Yeah. You know, when in actuality, um, I would probably argue that brass band musicians are probably some of the most capable musicians musically, uh-huh. um, some of the most diverse musicians, because most of the cast not only play with brass band, but they play with a lot of other groups. I mean, look at Kermit Ruffins, look at James Andrews, look at Troy, Troy Andrews, you know, where all, where all those guys start at? They got their chops in brass bands. Yeah. You know what I mean? We can go throughout history, all the way back to Louis Armstrong, yeah. and look at all the successful New Orleans cats, and a great majority of them came from the brass band community. So, um, Tell me about your background with that. You said it was in your background to do that. And yeah. What was, yeah. What was uh, my own? Um, my dad, Dwight Miller, is um, sax player and was one of the founders of Pinstripe Brass Band. Pinstripe Brass Band. Pinstripe Brass Band grew out of one of Doc Paulin's brass bands. Doc, okay. Doc Paulin had several bands. Um, you know, he had a number, just like Olympia, you know, he had a number one band, a number two band, a number three band. And how did that work? He was doing that to get different kinds of work simultaneously? Or? Well, it, it was it was kind of twofold. One, and it goes back, actually goes to an important part of the, the brass band tradition that I'll be writing about. Uh-huh. And that is um, the personal and cultural mentorship. Okay. You know, the older musicians have always um, allowed the younger cats beneath their wings. And the difference with Paulin, um, is that he had so many kids. I, I mean, see. I think he had like eight boys or something like that. Uh-huh. You know, so the older musicians provided a training ground. Uh-huh. And then that training ground would essentially form into brass bands like mm-hmm. Fairview mm-hmm. Bar- with, with Danny Walker, the uh-huh. Fairview Baptist Brass Band. Yeah. Um, but what happens in most instances, and that's the same with Mahogany, my band, Mahogany Brass Band. Yeah. We were Junior Pinstripe Brass yeah. Band. Uh-huh. You know, um, how, did you, how did you come to change the name? Oh, so, so well, finish what you're saying. So with Pinstripe, essentially, you know, the guys start learning the business, start learning the music. You know, on um, the way my dad gives me the story is that many of the cats felt that Doc was was manipulating them fiscally. Uh-huh. You know, and of course we notice how most bands break up. Mm-hmm. So what some of the younger cats did was they essentially formed their own groups, and one of these groups was the Pinstripe Brass Band. I think my dad told me this was seventy. 72, 73, somewhere in that range mm-hmm. when that happened. And then Pinstripe Brass Band became a wave of that more contemporary style like the Dirty Dozen, the Hurricane Brass Band, Chosen Few Brass Band. Mm-hmm. These younger guys who learned from like the Danny Balkers, the Paul Valbrands, the Milton Batistas, mm-hmm. and started putting more elements of, of pop music and whatever was the hip thing going on on, right. on the R&B charts and stuff like right. that. Um, changing the grooves on the street, et cetera, et cetera. So me as a kid, man, I remember going to my first 
you know, second line alongside my dad. You know, firstly, my house was a musical house. His cats were always at my house. Um, but just going to the parades with my dad, man, it was like, it was like being inside of a movie. You know, my dad was this rock star. I mean, everybody, they called him White. You know, uh, so everybody knew White. You know, he grew uh, up in the Calio Project and okay. he was from the uptown area. Um, the Booker T High School and most of the other members of Pinstripe went to Cohen High School. Okay. But essentially, they were popular, man. Everybody knew them, you know what I'm saying? And then once they started playing that music, man, just the way people would react. You know, I remember, you know, you see Kit Kats dancing on the roofs of cars. You see that cats dancing on the roofs of buildings and houses and shit. You know, you see cats dancing on um, those cedar block fences. Yeah. Um, you see big puddles of water if it had rained out that day or the day before or something. And cats are just jump in the wall and start rolling around. It was like voodoo, man. It was like this, this weird-ass voodoo. And as a young kid, it scared me, but at the same time, it mesmerized me. Like, what is it with the power of this music, you know, that makes people just essentially forget who and where they are? I mean, people think about people are following the second line for, for, for five, six, seven, eight miles. And for two, three, four hours. Uh -huh. You know, when I was younger, the second line used to be four to five hours. Uh -huh. And you have the same people that start at the beginning of the parade. You right. see most of the people at the end of the parade. Yeah. You know, and the parade might start uptown at Shakespeare Park, and the parade might end downtown at the Zulu Club or at, at um in Treme somewhere. Right. You know, so that was my introduction to the music and it was also I, I would say that magnet. To um, the music. That vibrancy and that, that wildness, I mean, I know why, but, you know, what, the reaction that you saw with, with, the, with, you know, with the power was, was that something that you were seeing uh, in where your father had started the pinstripe? Was that the same in Paul Wyburn's bands? Did people have the reaction or was that something new suddenly in that period? No, I, I think, and again, even, in, you know, include my own thoughts with the, the research and the, the, the the interviews I've been doing and all the secondary literature and yeah. stuff. I think that's the magic of the brass band music. You know, it, it's it's almost a spiritual life sense. And I mean, we go all the way back to the 1800s. Yeah. You know, I mean, what do we read about? What do we hear about? We hear about, you know, what made New Orleans this mythical-like place. And one of them was the way people paraded and marched through the streets. Right. And who were they parading and marching through the streets with? Right. Marching bands and brass bands. You know, so it's, it's something mythical about this music a magical, I should say, about this music that, you know, since 1812, 12-ish, all the way up to 2013, this music has the power and the command in the vernacular to make people or coerce people to just become a totally different embodiment of who they are. It's a powerful music, you know? And I mean, I don't have my hands on it in its totality, but I think it, it, it's a powerful music but I think what's important for me as a musician, an educator, and now as a researcher is that I also think it's a very misunderstood music uh -huh. because it's almost like Mardi Gras Indians, you know? Yeah. We see it, but we don't know it, uh -huh. you know? Uh -huh. um, and especially with New Orleans, but New Orleans has a, a habit of uh, exploiting and commodifying it, its indigenous cultures. And the researcher, Helen Regis, who I actually remember, remember when I was a teenager, I'd always see this tall white chick you know, at all the second line, so and yeah. so and so. Here it is now. I come to find out that's Helen Reeves, and she's a, a, a anthropologist at LSU, and 90% wow. of her work has been catered on the Black American music in New Orleans, specifically brass bands and Mighty Rock second lines. You uh -huh. know, but something that she put in one of, in one of her research pieces is that 
most white people in New Orleans have actually never been to a traditional second line. Yes, that's true. You know, and that's because they take place, of course, within you know the poor and working class black neighborhoods. Yeah. You know, yet everyone feels like they have a voice and can tell the history of them. Oh uh, yeah. You know, so I feel that just my positionality as a musician, as a brass band musician, as a in, as a true insider, um, offers me an opportunity to just shed some new light and some new ideas um, and some new perspectives that other researchers just haven't been able to do. How did they did they take this up at the University of Alabama where they okay? How did they like your proposition? Well, actually, it was kind of it was it was kind of ironic because I was trying to sway away from it. You know, I when I it. yeah, when I started my program, you know, I knew I wanted to do something dealing with New Orleans. Uh, I knew I wanted to deal with something with resilience and recovery. Mm -hmm. You know, um, as an educator and administrator, you know, I look at I have a master's degree in education administration. So you know, I looked at the schools and specifically, you know, how the schools were were treating the African American population uh -huh. because there's been a great decentralization in what we call neighborhood schools in New Orleans. You know, again, with me growing up here, New Orleans was this city of neighborhoods, but New Orleans was also this city of schools uh -huh. where, you know, every three blocks there's an elementary school. Two blocks from there, three blocks from there, there's a middle school. You know, two or three blocks from there, if not across the street, there's a high school. Right. And that just, that that's, you know, that was the fabric of the city in every community. Um, so I was concerned with that, with the whole charter school takeover. You know, I was one of those 7,000 teachers who were, you know, forelowed. You right. know, following Katrina, so, um, so my ideas were all over the place. I knew I wanted to do research on New Orleans. However, in all of my classes, and in all of my conversations with my committee, what my committee members realized is that what would make me the most excited, what would make me the most passionate, and what I would rant about the most would actually all come back to the music. Okay. Um, you know, to the music and how the music was affected by the storm and how the city was affected by the storm, okay. but how the city was affected by the music. Uh -huh. You know, the brass band musicians were the first cast back. Yeah. You know, they were the first ones parading through the streets right. I mean, and, and then performing in the city. Why? We don't need electricity. We don't need an anything, right. You know, yeah. um, so actually it was my committee who, who allowed me to recognize, I guess, a piece of passion in me that I hadn't recognized. Or maybe I recognized it, but at the same time, I dealt with a lot of emotional, psychological scarring from Katrina. Mm -hmm. I honestly did. I was pissed off, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I was even pissed off at the music that made me who I am. I mean, this music right. has made me an international celebrity, you know. I mean, yeah. this music has allowed me to live a quality of life um, that most musicians dream of, and especially most black men from the inner city of New Orleans, or inner city of any urban community dreams of. I've been traveling the world since I was 17. I've been traveling yeah. the country since I was 14. Mm -hmm. You know, on multiple houses and multiple states and multiple cars. You know, how many young, you know, I mean, I was 30 when Katrina hit. Yeah. How many young people can say that, you know, yeah. but at the same time, I, I think Katrina was such a, it was such a jab that, I mean, like it probably did so many other people, it just really yeah. fucked me up. I mean, yeah, it, it, it hit me hard. What, um, let's see, your generation, I mean, you traveled a lot, but obviously the, the, I don't know how much world traveling the previous generation before, as you said, Dirty Dozen Pinstripe, mm -hmm. that wasn't, there was not so much uh, overground world, uh, world attention, what changed? Well, I, well one, I, 
or am I that, wrong? That's I yeah. That's that's not that's not completely true. It's not completely true okay. because you know. Again, going back to what made me want to be interested in even performing within the brass band uh-huh. genre, it was my dad. Okay. I mean, I give it all to my dad uh-huh. because, again, since being a kid, my dad was traveling to Japan. Oh, he was to Germany with the brass band. with the brass band. Yeah, okay. my dad has my dad has traveled the world purely with brass band. Purely with pinstripes. This has always been brass. This is you know I could say since their generation specifically, specifically, but yeah. not that's what I mean. But the previous generation yeah. before that, not I, so much. I, I know Olympia, you know, hit the road a pretty good amount. Okay, you know, but I don't think it was as widespread as it began. You know, probably in the mid seventies, especially the early eighties and mid eighties. Why do you think that is? I don't. I I'd probably say one the popularity, two, um, the excess of the music. Again, you know, I mean, you essentially need seven cats with seven airplane tickets and and seats. You don't need, you know, this big old world tour of equipment and amps and speakers and all that kind right. of stuff. So you know the. The music is is very feasible in terms of its ability to perform, mm-hmm. um, and probably also its you know its financial reasoning. You know, also I would say it has something to do with it. What I've experienced also is that the promoters in the festivals internationally and nationally can get so much more out of a brass band than they can get from your traditional rock or even a traditional jazz band. Because the brass band. You have the second line component going right. through the streets of the city. You have the stage component, uh-huh. you know, going through. You have the workshop component. So essentially, right. you, you have four or five forms of entertainment. The workshop component, that's you teaching. Know, teaching, going into the schools and going to the community, teaching, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the mentoring thing, I want to talk about that because is that, do you think of, do you feel that that's as strong now that they still have the young guys, the, the, the uh, more mature musicians are still taking younger musicians and teaching them that stuff, or are they having to go it on their own? No, I really think that they have to go it on their own, and now with me immersing myself into the the research itself, mm-hmm. you know, and again, observing, talking to cats, etc. Um, that's that's a very important part of the puzzle that I think um, is going to be a defining point in the future of brass bands. Uh-huh. You know, going back to you asking me earlier, you know, how, you know, with us, with Mahogany Brass Band, which is my band, we started as Junior Pinstripe Brass Band, and it grew out of that mentorship. You know, uh-huh. I started with my dad. Um, I actually started as the Grand Marshal for Pinstripe Brass Band okay. when I was in like the fifth or sixth grade. Uh-huh. But I've always been a very shy guy, you know. Um, the horn in my hand helps me kind of forego that a little bit, but I've always been a very shy person. So my role as Grand Marshal didn't work out very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started playing trumpet in the sixth grade, taking it seriously in the seventh grade. By the eighth grade, I was out in the French Quarter on the weekends playing. Mm-hmm. Um, out by the old A and P on Royal, um, and out in French, or not out on in, in Jackson Square, Square. Um, playing. By the end of my eighth grade year, beginning of my ninth grade year, I actually started playing with Pinstripe, okay. um, with the band themselves. Really started improving, taking lessons from the trumpet player George Johnson, who was their trumpet player, um, Dwayne Burns. I mean, you know, the older cats really embraced and really mm-hmm. taught me, and you know essentially like gave me homework so I would have to go home and learn shit that they gave me right. in order for me to play the next gig. Right. And at the time I wasn't getting paid. My dad might give me fifteen dollars for playing right. or whatever. Wow. But essentially I went through I went through my rites of passage to learn the music, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. 
but that was that mentorship. That was that cultural mentorship. And I went to Bell Junior High School. And I remember walking, my parents moved out to New Orleans East when I was in the eighth grade. And I remember I'd have to walk from Bell through Treme to get to the bus stop, mm -hmm. to catch the bus to New Orleans East. And you'd see, you know, musicians sitting on a porch, or just older cats, you know, and they see the instrument in your hand and, you know, stop you and start talking to you and telling you what to practice. And I mean, come to find out, you talking about cats like the Humphrey Brothers, mm -hmm. you know, Danny Walker, you know, Tuba Fats. I mean, these cats just, Milton Batiste, just hanging out in the neighborhood, so and right. so and so. Um, and that's how Mahogany started, you know, uh -huh. as when I got to high school, my junior in high school, we had become so popular as what, what, my 10th grade year, 11th grade year, I'd approach the band and ask them, could I start my own band? Because you know, I had these younger musicians that we'd met and to go upon the legacy of Pinstripe. So we became junior Pinstripe for uh -huh. Aspen. The popularity just kind of took off from us performing. Um, uh -huh. So we decided that we need to change the name because it started becoming a lot of business conflict. You know, people calling for big pinstripe, they getting us. People calling for junior pinstripe, they getting the big pinstripe. Okay. So we just changed the name, etc. And that's the storyline of a lot of brass bands. You know, a lot of the younger brass bands, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Going back to the mentorship post Katrina, what I've observed is that that mentorship is almost nil and non-existent in the slightness of the mentorship that still exists, very little of it is in the community of any. I mean, you, you can no longer walk through a community like Treme and find an older cat sitting on the stoop. You know, you can't find your Uncle Lionel's, you know, That's hanging fun. out on um, your uncle. You know, you think of Joe's Closed the Corner where they had the shoe sign, you know, staying. You know, starting at two o'clock in the evening, you had all them cats. You yeah, know, used to hire just hanging out. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, just just hanging out. You think about somebody like Kermit. You know, I mean, how did Kermit really get this vibe that he has? It was from being able to hang out with your Danny Walkers and um, your, your Uncle Lionel Batistas, etc. Yeah. Whereas now you try and play your horn on the front porch and trim it. What happens? The neighbor yeah. calls the police. Yeah. <laughs> See that you, you know you're being disturbed. Yeah. And you know something else that I've observed is that the fabric of what was once considered the African-American community yeah. in New Orleans is no longer existing. Okay, and why is, what, what's happening? And I think with that, it had a lot to do with the disbursement post-Katrina, you know. Um, you know, I know there's been a lot of talk about, you know, concentrations of poverty and, and, and the housing projects, et cetera. But I mean, if you go back in history, man, if you even if you just look at research that was done in Tally's Corner, mm -hmm. you know, this is 1960s Chicago. It was it was one of the most um, breathtaking, I would say, anthropo anthropological studies done on urban America and specifically black males. It was done in Chicago okay. in the mid 60s, and he essentially was looking at poverty. Mm -hmm. What is poverty? Why is there this? What seems to be this consistency of poverty, you know, okay. in these urban communities uh -huh. from an outsider? You know that lives in the suburbs or lives in the garden district. If you go, if you went to Treme 1980s, Treme early 90s, from your lens you may see poverty. Yeah. But from 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 the inside, you know what those people saw was a neighborhood fabric, it was uh -huh. a neighborhood of support. You know, yeah, there were issues. You uh -huh. know, but they felt safe and they had everything that they needed, especially the cultural and spiritual aspects of what has allowed. You know, what I would say has allowed 
you know, minorities such as minorities that have been systematically impoverished to have a sense of resiliency. And it was that community support. Mm -hmm. You know, your neighbor was more than just your neighbor. Mm -hmm. You know, your neighbor was your family. You yeah. may not have been blood family, uh -huh. but your neighbor was your, you, you know, if you needed something, if, if they had beans and you had bread together, y'all made a meal. Okay. You know, well, post-Katrina, that, that little moment exists. Okay. You know, um, I, it, it, it seems paradoxical because, of course, you know, when things are hard, you'd imagine that the communities bind together tighter and end up with a stronger identity, mm -hmm. and really the, the storm was extremely hard on on everybody. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, it's interesting the story you're saying, like the, the previous thing came out of poverty and was mm -hmm. impoverishment and created a tighter community and a situation where we're helping each other. It mm -hmm. seems like this particular one, there was hardship and all that, but it actually causes the fragmentation and the splintering and so what's... Yeah. what's and then I, I probably think that splintering and fragmentation was caused by another element that was you know, unfortunate, which is the lack of ownership. Okay. You know, so we had these communities, you know, community wow. like Treme, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, you have people who, you know, were renters for 20, 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You know, um, I was somewhere last weekend talking to someone. I can't remember who it was. And I don't even know how the conversation came up. Photographer. I was at, sitting in with the Treme Brass Band at the DBA last week. Uh -huh. And we were talking about post-Katrina music and specifically brass. That's kind of what we're talking about right now. And the guy who was leading the conversation said, you know, man, I've been um, photographing musicians in, in second lines, you know, for over 20 years. Yeah. And the sad thing about it, he said, you know, it's unfortunate and, and not to say it in a negative light, but if you think about somebody like Uncle Lionel, he died poor. Yeah. You know, I mean, he died poor. Yeah. What Katrina exposed was the deep rootedness of poverty. You know, so what I mentioned earlier in terms of the cultural and social and spiritual fabric that was that was created um, within those poor communities, you know, that was a sense of survival. You uh -huh. know, and, and like some of the older people will say, you know, you have all the way from the plantations of people who grew up in very rural communities that grew up poor. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you go to the Black Belt of Alabama, you go back 10 years ago, you still have people who had outhouses, yeah. you know, no indoor plumbing. Mm -hmm. It's not until you go to the biggest city and you see people living in 1.2 and 3.2 million dollar mansions that you realize you're poor. Right. While you're inside of that nucleus of, of what's called home, you don't recognize that you're poor. I see. And I think what Katrina did was it exposed that and how the fragmentation was able to take place is that there was such a lack of ownership. Yeah. You know, you had to, you know, if, if you're living in a housing project, they say they're gonna board the windows up. It's nothing you can do. You can march all you want, yeah. but you don't own it. You don't own it. You know, in Treme, you know, they can say that Treme was the, you know, has been the was the oldest suburb in America that was composed of free and enslaved people of color. Mm -hmm. It was the oldest African American, yeah. you know, suburb in America. But in 2005 and 2006, what we realized, though it had that history, the ownership wasn't there. Yeah. Because post-Katrina, whoever was owning those properties were able to say, well, you know, you've been paying me 20, you know, $250 for the last 20 years, but right now I'm going to raise the rent up to, you know, $1,800. Yeah, and all of a sudden. You know, yeah. the situation that took place with places like Joe's Cozy Corner, oh, you yeah. know. Um, so 
that was a part of that fragmentation, you know. So I think that was probably one of the most negative outcomes of Katrina is it allowed for the decentralization, again, of what could be considered the historicness of the African-American community in the world.